ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. It's a lovely old house, isn't it? It is amazing, yeah. But it's um, incredibly special. I don't think there's another property in the, in the country that's so beautiful, so close to a major city. Like, you know, you can literally walk, I think it's probably 15 minutes into the city from here, so. Where are we? We're on the top floor of Lamb House, an historic mansion built in 1903. Perched on a cliff, with a sweeping view right down the majestic Brisbane River. Lamb House is undergoing major reconstruction, and our guide is architect James Davidson. He and his colleagues have used a 3D scanner to capture every speck of this wonderful old building. So scanning a house of this size, a mansion of this size, how long does that actually take? Um... Because we wanted the accuracy, I think it probably took two days, I'd say, inside and out. And that's because we were chasing to the millimetre. So the, long, the greater the accuracy, the longer the scan takes. We pin all those scans into a point cloud. Basically, it all stitches it all together. And so that's what takes the time. Although I have to say, two days to, do, to scan inside and out a house like this to literally millimetres doesn't seem like a long time to me. It's, it's not. And four or five years ago, we would have had to have done it by hand and drawings and photographs and things like that. So it probably would have taken us a month, perhaps. And we wouldn't have even then had the amount of level of detail that we've got in a, a two-day scan kind of thing. So, yeah, it's worth, it's worth its weight in gold. The field of architecture is experiencing a technological revolution. And that's not hyperbole. New devices like the kinds of spatial ops technology that James has been using offer boundless opportunities. But the profession is also facing an existential threat from the rapid development of artificial intelligence, architecture and the balance between automation and human creativity. That's our episode today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here, and you're with Future Tense. Frankly, you know, I don't think that artists or architects are quite as imaginative as they're supposed to be. If you think about art, there's a canon to art. We, we know what modernist art is, we know what Renaissance art is, we know what Impressionist art is. And so too with architects, you know, you've got to keep broadly within the canon. You, you know, we're being fairly safe in what we do. So I don't think it's something to be scared of, but I do think it's something that architects do need to engage with and not kind of put their heads in the sand thinking, oh, that's not for us. You know, it's, it's going to become quite an essential tool, I think, just for the, basically the kind of grunt work, you know, the kind of work that used to have been done by a kind of part one student or an intern. So before we get to the contentious bit, let's hear more about the new 3D laser scanning technology that's being used to restore Lamb House. I'm in a grand yeah. reception area, and the man in front of me with the tripod and scanner is Arjan Santu from James Davidson's architectural firm, JDA Co Brisbane. Yeah, every time we move the scanner, we have to level it, and that just ensures the accuracy is still there as we move across different rooms, different areas, different slopes. The first thing to notice is that it is quite compact, isn't it? Mm. It's quite portable. Mm. It's great for travelling on the plane. 
And yeah. you operate a what from this tablet? That's correct. So it's got a Wi-Fi connection. So once I've leveled it on site, I can move away from the scanner, make sure nothing around the scanner is moving, and yeah, I'll have all the data imported and started from all from the tablet. And so we'll make a new project. And with this device, you actually don't need to use it to the max settings. You can just use it to the very lightweight settings, and that's still enough data to capture on site. So we'll start one here and um, turn the color camera on. And I'll just press start, and then she's away. spinning 360 degrees and what you're hearing right now is it's, it's scanning a million points per second and it's up capturing up to 300 meters away. You know, it's peeking through the windows, it's peeking through any little gap that it can see that we won't notice on site and that's kind of the beauty of it is it'll capture the things that you won't see and then you'll take it back to the office and it will all be there. So you know, this scan's nearly finished, it's done taking about 40 seconds to finish and after that it will do another color image and do some panorama images so that we can link the exact view um, from the scan of exactly what we've captured on site on that day. And um, that's really good for record keeping m moving forward. Now, the images produced by the scanner are hard to describe. They're three-dimensional, but they also look otherworldly, as though shot from a distance looking down into the room. But what's most important, as we've heard, is the accuracy of the data gathered. JD Aco specialises in climate-resilient design and restoration, and their laser scanner is essentially the same technology used in the restoration of the Cathedral of Notre Dame. James Davidson. So what they've done at Notre Dame, is, and they're using it exactly the way we've used it here, because Lamb House was decrepit when we found it. It was falling down. It would have probably lasted another couple of years and then it would be gone kind of thing. And, and I'm aware that the same technology is actually being used in the Ukraine at the moment to record beautiful old buildings before they get blown up. So... So there's a, a, a what a millimetre by millimetre record of a building that can, if the government say there decides to restore it later on, they could do that. Correct. That's right. And so that's the beauty of it. It then becomes a, an archived record. And you know, I'm hoping that as the technology gets better and better, it just gets easier and easier. And you know, what might cost 150 grand now for a scanner, for instance, might end up being you know 10 grand in the future, for for example. And everybody's got one. And I feel like it's a huge advantage to us in, we do a lot of our flood resilience work as well. So oftentimes to reach a scale of kind of being able to help a lot of people in a very short period of time, we've, we've utilised the laser scanning to, to assist us yet again. And it's just, it's a wonderful technology. You can see the advantages from a heritage perspective of recording a building, getting an accurate record. What are the advantages though when you're restoring a historic house like this? we can give the builder exact accurate information. So it leads to a lot less variations in work. Interestingly, we do quite a lot of schools work up north and we can go to site once and we never ever have to go back. We can interrogate a photo and actually we can measure distances within a photo, X, Y, Z axis. And it means that in the past, you know, we would be asked to do, say, a school in remote north Queensland and we'd be given some sort of mud map that some guy who's just gone to visit once whether it's the engineer or the project manager and and then we'd have to base our documentation on that and we were always going to be wrong and so that would then lead to a lot of trouble with the builder because they'd price on our, our information and then inevitably it's wrong whereas in this case we can go get it perfectly accurate come back you know within two days we can have the base plans drawn set up the documentation and then we've seen it lead to a lot less variation. So, yeah, it's a 
great advantage to us. Just again, describing the situation here, I mean, what are we looking at here? What part of the house is this? And, and what sort of work has been done? How is the, um, this kind of technology being useful? So, for example, we're now standing in the what will be the dining room. We've been able to record every single detail in, in this house. And so in this room, for instance, we needed to do a lot of repair on the pressed metal ceiling, for instance. So we were able to laser scan that, draw it, and give that information to the builder at the time to get some pricing done. So that it, new pieces of metal could be pressed to the exact specifications. Exactly. Well, it That's looks right. fantastic, I it have does. to say. It does. And you couldn't tell, right? Like 85% of it's the existing, the original, but there are definitely portions of that which are new. And, and I suppose the advantage with something like that, with an example like this, is it's incredibly intricate. So being able to have those exact precise measurements must be an advantage. It's a no-brainer for us. The, the difficult thing is it does take time and effort to learn the tech, as always, with new, new technologies. And, you know, thankfully I've, um, in a way, got an office full of, you know, non-technically challenged people, because I'm the right. technically challenged one. It's <laughs> um, very honest. <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, got to know your strengths and weaknesses, right? So they've been the ones that have kind of driven the, the innovation Laser scanning is a tool of restoration that's certainly impressive, but it's not the only technology that promises to reimagine the practice of architecture, or destroy it, depending on your viewpoint. Oliver Wainwright, architecture and design critic with The Guardian, based in the UK. AI in a kind of architecture and design context really only like emerged kind of publicly within the last kind of six to 12 months as these strange images started appearing on social media that were generated by text-to-image AI models. So, you know, you could type in a sentence like a skyscraper in the style of Frank Lloyd Wright and it would generate an image. And, and they would been very kind of clunky to begin with, you know, very like pixelated and blurry and not particularly convincing. And the speed of change has just been mind-blowing. You know, within, I, I guess, kind of six months of these things being out, they were becoming almost impossible to differentiate from, you know, photorealistic well, photography. I think a lot of people thought, well, okay, this isn't really a revolution because it's just images. You know, it's it's like an evolution of Photoshop. It's very sophisticated image making, but it's not actually spatial. You know, it's not a three-dimensional tool. It's just kind of creating these visual fantasies. What I hadn't realized, and I think most of the architectural profession hadn't realized, is that people were working away in companies like Autodesk and other Chinese software companies actually developing incredibly sophisticated spatial AI tools. So there are now these models where you can kind of feed in the basic parameters of a site. So the kind of local planning conditions, the orientation, things like wind movements and daylight requirements. And the AI model will actually generate the kind of optimum floor plan for that specific site. And then beyond that, you can then get it to kind of generate the facade, generate the layouts of the rooms, even down to things like producing the kind of construction list of components to then be sent straight to the factory. And I was interviewing a software developer in Shenzhen who was talking me through this kind of theoretical idea of you know how you could generate the hotel layout and then send the drawings to the factory. And she showed me an image, which I assumed was AI generated. And it turned out this hotel had already been built. So there's now a 500 bedroom hotel in Shenzhen, you know, designed and essentially fabricated using AI, which I just found astonishing, you know, that the revolution has 
essentially already happened. And, and as you say, this isn't just about concept design. This is about everything, the whole process from design right through to construction. Exactly. In a way that I think that's the biggest kind of fundamental change. And it's the less sexy change. You know, I think media, and we're guilty of this as well at The Guardian, you, know, you focus on the seductive images, you know, which are very compelling. But it's really the kind of technical nitty gritty, which is where it's having a big effect. The things like optimizing the layouts of office buildings, for example. So Norman Foster has an entire team in his office dedicated to artificial intelligence and They've been using the back catalogue of Foster projects to kind of train this like super brain, essentially. So you can now, when their teams are designing buildings, they have a kind of AI tool telling them in real time the impact of certain design changes. So when you, you know, place a wall in the middle of a floor plan or kind of move office rooms around, like meeting rooms around, it will show you kind of how more or less efficient that floor plan is becoming. So these things are already being used in practices in a way that I think most people aren't really kind of aware of. And and as you say, it's a tool that's being added into the general kind of workflow process. But not all architectural firms are alike, as you can imagine. And their ability to experiment with and create their own new AI tools, well, it varies considerably. It's only firms of the size of Foster and Partners, you know, these gigantic corporate architecture firms that have the capacity to do that kind of in-house modeling. And so a lot of other architects are relying on, you know, open source software like Midjourney, Stable Diffusion, which I think is actually much more risky because you don't know where the data is coming from and, and what has been used to train those models. So most of it's kind of scraped from the internet. You know, it'll just kind of harvest whatever open source information is available. But there's no level of kind of quality control. And it was interesting talking to the head of AI at Foster's. You know, she was adamant they would only ever use their own data, and it would be on their protected servers. You know, because you, you really risk, but both your own kind of private data being used to train other companies' models. And also your clients' data, you know, they're a kind of intellectual property minefield once things become open source. So I think people are really trying to keep it in-house as far as possible. Falling behind in a fast-changing world is clearly an issue. But the role and status of the architect has actually been in flux for quite a long time, according to Professor Neil Leach, architect, theorist and author of Architecture in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. Architects are no longer in charge in the way they used to be. We've inherited the notion of the architect from Leon Battista Alberti, who was an Italian Renaissance theorist, an architect, and he defined the architect as someone who was in charge of everything. And that's what the term architect means in the original Greek. But it seems we're losing that. We're losing that authority. In the UK, at least, more than 50% of the contracts are now being done as design-build contracts. In other words, the architect is not in charge. The architect is working directly for the developer. And in any case, I think that architects never really commanded that much authority. Only 5% of the buildings in the world are said to be have been designed by an architect. But that position has been eroded further. So I, I could see that we're already not in the strongest position, shall we say. But I know very soon... The whole process of design itself, not just the image making, but the whole process is going to be fully automated, which, of course, will be incredibly convenient. And we'll also almost approach the point where AI can pretty much work autonomously and incredibly convenient. But there's, of course, there's a slight dark side in that, because once you've got AI that's able to work autonomously, maybe you don't need so many architects. And how far away do you think that is, that point? 
I'm thinking in terms of the software that's going to transform the discipline architecture, probably two to three years. They're working on it right now. It's a bit primitive, but, you know, these things are speeding up. I mean, one of the things that we have to take into account with any technological innovation is what's called Moore's Law. That is to say, this was an observation made by an industrialist called Gordon Moore back in the 60s that the number of transistors on a circuit board would double every every two years and the price would come down by half, which means that change is exponential. We're not talking one, two, three, four. We're talking one, two, four, eight. And that's been applied to all of technology now. So that explains to some extent why these things seem to be speeding up so much. The future is suddenly upon us. All these sudden developments are, are part of that pattern. And whatever we see now, we can be assured that next year things will be even more astonishing. So it's a, a process that's going to happen very, very quickly. Many of us think of architects almost as the creative start of a building process. But in a way, they're the middleman, aren't they, between the person who wants a building or house and the construction company, the builder. Well, the problem with these, with Dali Midjourney and all these diffusion models is that they effectively do what an architect's done in the past. You, you have the words of the client and you give an architectural vision to those words. You interpret those words. And that's really what this can do. So the danger is that, is, is that effectively somebody could bypass the architect. And it depends, of course, on the legislation. I'm not quite sure in Australia whether you'd be allowed to do that. But the role of the architect is under threat because anybody effectively could start generating building designs and could go directly to the contractor and say, listen, I've got a sketch here. What do you think of that? Could you build that. So we're in a situation where certainly our authority has been undermined on all fronts. Neil Leach's advice to new architects is to embrace the new tools that are out there. And as James Davidson and his team in Brisbane have been doing, try and diversify the services you offer. But it's also important to remember that architects and architecture have been here before. When I was a student at the University of Cambridge, it was the first kind of digital revolution back in the in the late 80s. And we were banned from using computers in, in the design studio. And all that did was produce a generation of graduates who were unemployable. So you really have to engage with it. And I think more importantly, what we're discovering is that is that clients are asking for architects to use this tool because, first of all, it guarantees the return on investment. It, you know, it looks at optimizing the possibilities. And frankly, AI is going to be much more accurate than human beings. You've just got to look at the way that ChatGPT gets its spelling right and its grammar right, whereas humans don't, to see that that's the problem. And that's going to get even more extreme as, as we go on. So from all fronts, we need to be very cautious about this. And there are massive flow-on effects, aren't they, for the way in which architecture is taught, but also, I'd imagine, for the nature of the profession, the sort of people who who in the future will want to be architects, because it will be a very different profession in just a few years. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly, I think that as a professor myself, I can tell you, you we're at the coalface. This is the more, in some ways, the, the changes are more important to education than they are to the profession, because we are educating the architects of the future who are going to be out there whatever it is that happens, the singularity, whatever we call it, when the moment, the explosion of AI really happens, is going to take place. And that's going to fundamentally change things. And we have to realize that, first of all, that, that if we're not going to need so many architects in the future, we probably don't need so many students. And if we don't need so many students, we probably don't need so many professors. What's more, if these tools make the whole task of designing a building so much easier, we have to ask whether the standard five years of architecture education is necessary anymore. Issues around liability, around insurance in the building industry, what, what are the implications of AI playing a much bigger role for those issues? 
You know, there's a there's an Australian academic, actually he's from the UK, called Toby Walsh, who takes this question about insurance and looks at driving. And I think it's a very interesting parallel to be made with architecture. And what he basically says is a bit of a kind of dystopian viewpoint. But he says that we will be banned from driving eventually. And his logic is this, sort of, as self-driving cars come along, they'll be very tempting. You know, when people go out for a drink in the evening, we'll say, well, let's go and take a self-driving Uber or something. And we'll do that instead of driving. And the more we use these self-driving cars, the more our driving skills will decline. And of course, those, those self-driving cars are going to get better and better and better. Now, Walsh's prediction is that eventually insurance for human drivers is going to go up because of that. And eventually it'll be so much more expensive than self-driving cars. We'll just give up completely and say, what the hell? You know, and we won't even notice or care. That's his prediction, and maybe that's a bit over the top. But I think that's kind of similar in some senses to, to the role that architects play, because architects also have to have a professional indemnity insurance to secure themselves, to protect themselves, should any event happen in, in the design and construction of a building. So what is going to happen is unless we use AI to basically check things, we are going to be more liable. And I think ultimately... When you think about AI, actually, it's going to be very straightforward. And it's a bit like spell check, I think, in the future in many ways. It's going to fact check our text for sure. And it's going to be there as a kind of safeguard to protect us. And, you know, I think we're going to have to use it. And it's going to be a way of protecting us. If we don't use it, we'll have to pay more on our professional indemnity insurance for sure. And for architects at the moment who are looking at all of this and thinking, what is my future and where do I go from here? You argue, don't you, that they need to be more aggressive, that they actually need to start thinking beyond just the confines of the profession at the moment. Architects are actually very good. They've got very marketable skills, but we don't realise that because we're taught we're just to, do, to design buildings. But in fact, there are a number of architects designing 3D printed outfits for leading Paris designers, leading fashion designers. And we can do that. We've got lots of skills. We can understand material behaviour. We can design. We can think three-dimensionally and all that. And there are many... Many people working for NASA and SpaceX and so on who have a background in, in architecture and so, and so on. And there are many other industries. So potentially we could redeploy those skills in other arenas. But I think if we use our imaginations to really to design our future, not necessarily design a building, but to design our future, then we have many possibilities. And one of the things I would say that is an obvious one in some sense is that we've always lost out to the developer. The developer makes lots and lots of money and the architect makes peanuts, basically, you know. But maybe we could we could start thinking about taking on that role, especially when we've got ChatGPT to tell us what are the basic steps in terms of becoming a developer. And especially when we've got AI to guard against making mistakes, that potentially could be one arena. But the thing what you don't know about AI or indeed any technology is how people are going to use it and what they're going to do with it. The cell phone, for example, the mobile phone was never imagined to be for everybody. It was thought to be for originally that it was designed for rich businessmen. And it was when the rich businessmen passed it on to their daughters and said, give me a call um, when you want to be picked up and I'll come and pick you up. That suddenly it took on a different life. It became much more popular. The price went down and so on. And then you think, well, okay, that same device is what led to Uber and, and God knows what else. So we can see the technology and what's going to be developed. We know what's going to be developed. So even though we don't know when, quite when it's going to be working properly, but we don't know what we don't know are the inventive ways in which people are going to use that technology. Now, that's the challenge for architects to use their imagination, to really use this technology, harness it and think of inventive ways of operating with that technology.
So I don't think it's something to be scared of, but I do think it's something that architects do need to engage with and not kind of put their heads in the sand thinking, oh, that's not for us. Oliver Wainwright again from The Guardian. You know, it's, it's going to become quite an essential tool, I think, just for the basically the kind of grunt work, you know, the kind of work that used to have been done by a kind of part one student or an intern, you know, like doing these endless door schedules or kind of comparing material specifications. There's that kind of stuff that AI can just do very quickly and efficiently. So I think it's going to cut out a lot of that kind of mind numbing uh, manual labor from the architecture profession. We already know that AI being used for, for design like this can come up with some really quite fantastic fantastical designs, Mm. quite fantastical images. But you also talk about a danger of what you call AI urbanism. Yeah, so Autodesk, the the company which makes AutoCAD, one of the the biggest kind of architectural software companies around, they now have a tool called Forma, where you can put in all of the parameters of a site. So the local planning legislation, you know, where the, the sun path is going, what the kind of air quality is, daylight requirements, space requirements, all the things that architects usually have to consider. And it will generate the kind of optimum layout, optimum massing, the most efficient form of building, essentially, which I guess in the eyes of the developer is, you know, a very useful tool. They'll be able to maximize the the floor area and really kind of squeeze the building to the outer limits of what's kind of legally allowed. But I think the downside is you end up with this kind of relentlessly, you know, kind of ruthless economic logic where every building is, you know, the maximum possible, probably built for the cheapest possible amount. So I I do fear if AI is relied on and and not actually kind of controlled by architects, maybe used by developers without the kind of assistance of a human with design intelligence, it could lead to this very kind of bleak future where everything is essentially the most efficient you know, it's a kind of ultimate extrapolation of Taylorism and, and Fordism, you know, taken to it, its bleak conclusion. And efficiency is one of the attractions, isn't it? But speed mm. is another big thing here because these models can produce output at an incredible pace, can't they? Yeah, exactly. I mean, this the 500-bedroom hotel in China was designed and built, I think, in the space of about five or six months you know, so, so it's, it's really speeding things up. And, and I think one of the biggest positives that I think could happen and, and optimists over here think will happen is that if it's used in the right way, particularly by local planning authorities, it could actually help to kind of reduce land speculation and give certainty to developers. Because our planning system in the UK is, is all based on negotiation. You know, there's, there's never actually a clear kind of answer of what would be allowed on a site so it's up to a developer to kind of propose something and then the local authority says well you know maybe if you change this this and this ai could actually allow a local authority to set a kind of basic kind of almost like an outline design for what is possible on a site which would then allow the developer to actually know you know how much to pay for that site because they know what they'll be allowed to build so it could actually bring a level of kind of useful certainty which is lacking at the moment from the the english planning system and and that would actually help to speed up the process of schemes going through planning rather than being stuck in local authority planning departments for months on end while these negotiations happen. And that would be good for cities as much as it would be for those developers as well, wouldn't it? Because you'd have a more accurate understanding of what can be built in that particular space. 
And I think it would give confidence to the public as well, because it, it would be very clear, you know, it would be black and white what the future of an area is going to look like. And actually, former, the, the Autodesk software is being used by some public authorities, I think in Scandinavia, for like a collaborative planning process where a developer will kind of upload their model onto this open source public platform. And then the public can literally log on and kind of use these AI tools to tweak the model and, and kind of generate alternatives. So it's like a kind of collaborative design process. And, and then, you know, ultimately a kind of consensus will emerge on what's best for that site. So it could actually help to kind of open up the planning system and really improve that kind of public consultation. Design, smart technology, and the balance between human and machine creativity. Future tense for another week. Who did we hear from? Well, Oliver Wainwright, the architecture and design critic for The Guardian, Professor Neil Leach, an architect and theorist at Florida International University, and James Davidson and Arjun Sanhu from the architectural firm JDA Co in Brisbane. Karen Savanovitz was the producer for this particular episode. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.